Hey everybody, it's Rob. I know you're probably asking yourself, where's the hip upbeat music and where's the freewheel? I promise, we'll be getting to that in a second. But at the top of the show today, I wanted to take a second and pause and say thank you to a couple of people who've really helped out recently in making this a better experience and making this a better show. Specifically, I want to thank Brian Coe of Velo Worthy and Bill Scheiken of Cyclocross Radio. Please, by all means, go and listen to their podcast as well. And uh, PJ, Patrick Gerwantanon of NPR. All of these guys have really helped out making this a better show, making it a better experience, and teaching me what to do. In fact, the guys have convinced me to try to broaden out and make it even bigger and better. And so you'll see some changes coming up here in the next couple of weeks with the quality and with the guests and with some of the things around the show. So please keep tuning in. This season's heading towards a climactic season finale with an interview this fall with Justin Williams of Legion of L.A. So without further ado, let's get to our interview this week with DJ Brew. This is Mabba Radio, and I'm your host, Rob Kelly. There's an inherent communal aspect to road racing. Words like the peloton, the pack, even the breakaway all indicate a group of people coming together to share the load, to enjoy some degree of shared suffering. In fact, a lot of bike racing is about sharing, about being together with other people. Any type of endurance athletics is going to have an individual component. Training, recovery, all the things around the actual competition can be done as an individual. But in bike racing, and in road racing in specific, so much of what we do is done as a community. There's not many activities that have something like the 10 a.m. group ride. An opportunity for you and 50 of your closest best friends on bikes to get together and test each other to see what you can do and to push each other in a positive, competitive way. Today's guest, DJ Brew, is here to talk about the concept of community, whether it's through something that organically grows or whether it's through something that a couple of people decide, this is what we want to do. We're bike racers, we want to create a community. And DJ, whether he likes it or not, has become a leader, has become a community activist, has become an organizer, and has really created a positive environment in the Washington, D.C. area, and we want to learn how he did it. I want to welcome one of the most dominant sprinters in Mobber's <laughs> recent history here, Officer DJ Brew. How's it going today? It's going great. I just got done with a noon ride, so I'm feeling good. Feeling good. One of the fun things, calling you dominant sprinter I think it's a misnomer. I mean, you've been at the front end of Mobbers Fields for 11 years now. Yep, 11 years. Winning in Cat 4, extreme fashion. Wilmington Grand Prix is a Cat 2-3. And now winning just about any time there's an opportunity for a, a field sprint. But that's not just you. You're not just that sprinter guy anymore, are you? No, I'm um, after... 
winning a lot of races and sprints and waiting for field sprints, I've wanted to diversify my skill set. I realize I'll probably never be the greatest time trialer, but just working on those weaknesses and trying to get stronger in areas where it's not so obvious that I'm going to try and wait for the field sprint to kind of catch people off guard. So in a way, after you've won so many field sprints, people kind of get hip to the game and realize what you're trying to do. So it's nice to change up the game every once in a while and try and get in breakaways, trying to attack soften the legs and then if it does come down to a field sprint i'm still strong at the end of the race what are you doing to reinvent yourself how has the training changed for me this is the one of the first times i've actually had a coach from the beginning of an off season all the way through an actual race season i've had a coach before um dave guten plan temporarily like to kind of get me situated in areas where I'm like kind of ran out of ideas on stuff to try. But now I'm working with uh, Adam Pulford through uh, uh, the CTS um, system. And he's actually like, he spotted my weakness right away from a couple training files. So it was kind of good. Like we were on the same page from the very beginning and he knew where I was weak. So it was just spending a winter working on aerobic and, and like those like sub threshold efforts. So that's where I knew I was weak at. He saw that I was weak at it. So it was kind of good to be on the same page and work on that. Self-coached guy doing great work, getting incredible results. What was it that made you go, I need to get some outside help? When you kind of stop seeing progress and kind of, I ran out of ideas and it was one of those things where I looked and read every book and read all the research, and now I was like, okay, how do I implement this? I need somebody that's smarter than me now to kind of plug in, in all the knowledge that I had to kind of put it into action and get me on the right path. So it's just I ran out of ideas, and I kind of just wanted to focus on the writing, not necessarily the planning and how do we – what days do I need to recover? What days do I need to go hard? I didn't want to have to think about that this year to kind of take a little bit of stress off myself. 2018, I think one ride that you really wanted that you didn't get, that you became the teammate for, and that was the national championship criterium in Augusta, Georgia for the Masters, where your teammate Ryan McKinney ended up winning. Now, 2019, we're a couple days away from the elite national championship here in Hagerstown and then we've got a master's national championship in in Colorado in August are you hungry for those is that a focus for you definitely hungry for elite national championships I think um going it seems like for me right now the closer I get to the master's championship race the less I want to do it and it's one of those things is maybe I'm so focused right now on the Elite Amateur Nationals uh, on Sunday that I, I'm i not even thinking about Masters yet. It's I know I'm going 100% after Elites and you know seeing how that works out. I, maybe the motivation will come back and I'll be 100% in for Masters. But right now, I'm not even thinking about Masters. It's kind of taking one at a time. But 
yeah, I'm 100% game for elite nationals. I feel like as long as I can still be competitive, I will still have that hunger to be good for elite and not just completely go the master's route. Hagerstown is a race that you're very familiar with. Of course, you're super familiar with. You've won it before. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, I think you've won it after crashing multiple times in one <laughs> field. Uh, is there something that happened last year when you raced that race that you want to make sure that you avoid this year? Yeah, and I think it, that was one thing that really I saw where I was super motivated to go back to the drawing board, look at my training, and really kind of push me to hire a coach for the off season is because I saw... I'm good if I'm comfortable all the way until the last four or five laps. And then in that last four or five laps, when you're fighting for position every lap leading into a sprint is and the, the gaps start to open and you have to close things, that's where it starts to get a little hard for me. And it was because I know I was lacking a little endurance, not, not the top end. I feel like my top end can be competitive with some of the better sprinters in the, in you know nationally so I knew what I was really lacking was more of the endurance side of things to kind of put out those efforts at the end of 75 minutes or at the end of 90 minutes one of the things that we need to discuss is this concept of sprinting every cat three and cat four in the world is like I'm not a sprinter I'm a climber I'm not a climber I'm a sprinter the reality I think is that everybody who wants to compete at the top end of the sport needs to sprint whether you're sprinting from a three-person, five-person breakaway group, or if you're sprinting in a huge field, you're going to need to sprint at some point in time. The only person who doesn't is the guy who rides away solo. But you've excelled at one part of the sport, and I think you've been talking about it a little bit here, at the last five laps of a crit, or the last two or three miles of a road race, where it seems like it's chaos from the outside, but to the person who knows how to field sprint, you seem to see something that the rest of us don't. How does it? How do you vision these races coming down when it's 15 people trying to get that second wheel or third wheel to line it up? What is it about you that makes you so good at doing that? A lot of it really comes from playing mental tricks and... And it's one, when you go into a race and you're confident in the work that you put in, in the training that you did, in the coaching and your teammates, which is one, I would put, you know, having, being confident in your teammates towards the end of a race is super important. But having that confidence and telling yourself, you know, I'm ready for this. I've trained for this. Everyone else is hurting, but I know my training was good, so I can get through this. It's one of those things where you, in the last few laps, you just have to flip the switch to, I'm going to do whatever it takes to keep this position and to keep moving closer and closer to the front. And it's just telling yourself whatever it takes. If I have to do a little effort, I know that I've practiced this. I've done this in training. I know what I can do. And just having that confidence to know I can keep moving up. I can keep moving up. Okay, just a little bit more, a little bit more. And then eventually, year year, it's getting. And then I've had good advice from other people who've experienced it, and, and getting caught in the washing machine and the vortex at the front, where you get you make up three spots and then you lose five, then you make up those five and you lose six. So it's 
kind of riding the wave towards the end of a race to where you're positioned well, you're conserving as much energy as possible, but you are putting out effort where you know it's going to be most beneficial. Zach Allison was on the show on the last episode, and he was talking about being chill and how there's tons of chill riders out mm-hmm. there and guys who on the start line, they're just like, hey, whatever. It's just Saturday. I'll be cool, man. But you can't be chill in the last five. You have a personality of nothing really mm-hmm. hits you, but we've seen DJ Brew when the adrenaline gets going. How do you focus that fire that you've got in a positive way, right down into the pedals. In that instance, I'm only thinking about one thing, and that's winning. Like, what do I have to do to get to that line first? I'm not, I'm not thinking about is my teammate going to cover that move? Uh, who's behind me? Who who's in front of me? Who's going to take this corner good? How should I? Do? At that point, it's it has to go really completely to autopilot. And if you're thinking about too many things at one time, I feel like that's when you get panicked, when somebody bumping you is going to spook you. If you're thinking about crashing in a corner, it's going to spook you. It's going to, and it, it all is stress. It's accumulated stress towards the end of the race. It takes energy to think about a million things at one time. So you really have to go into autopilot where you're focused just on one thing. If, you, if you're on a lead out, and you have your teammates lined up in front of you, it's just knowing your spot, where you're going from. And a lot of times for me, going into those last three laps, I already know where I'm sprinting from. No matter what position I am, I'm in, I know when I get to that spot, I'm opening my sprint. I don't care how many people are in front of me, how many people are behind me. I know if I go from this particular spot, I can win. And I, I'm, I'm so focused on just get to this spot and then start your sprint. Away from Watson pedals, mm-hmm. let's talk about you. Because there's things about you that I don't think a lot of people know that doesn't fit the mold of your typical elite athlete. You know, For example, you have a degree in fine arts. I do. You play <laughs> an instrument. I do that too. <laughs> what instrument do you play? I play the cello. And where yeah. did you go to school? And I went to school. I went to school at From the Heart. It was a, a private school uh, in Temple Hills, which is where I started playing the cello. I got hooked up with the DC Youth Orchestra program, and it was just a program for like elementary school student, elementary, middle school, high school students. And we watched a video one day that was kind of introducing the program, and I was like. I wanted to play, it's funny, back then I was, you know, lazy. So I'm like, I want if I'm going to play an instrument, it has to be one where I can sit down. So, <laughs> so I was like, I'll play the cello because I can sit down. And, and then I really started to love the instrument. So it was one of those things like every Saturday you would go to Coolidge High School and I would be at Coolidge from like nine in the morning to one or two in the afternoon playing cello every Saturday. So, and it was an all, all year thing. And once a month we would have performances at the high school on Sunday evenings. But yeah, that was my Saturdays. Like there was no soccer or baseball or whatever, but I enjoyed it. I got to meet kids from all different backgrounds, all different ages. And the kids that played cello with me, those were like some close friends that I had all through high school and 
off to when I started to play in college. Art's a big thing for you. Mm -hmm. You have painted your own shoes. Yes. What inspires you to, to take something like shoes and make them your own? I really don't like off the rack stuff. And if I can customize it, I probably will attempt to do that. You know, it's it's really just a matter of finding the right materials to make something my own. You know, I, I kind of don't like, I'm not a very matchy person. So if I can do something that's going to make an article of clothing stand out, then I'll try. So yeah, it's really just not wanting to be boring. <laughs> Is that part of kind of the way that you approach being an athlete itself? You want to make yourself the unique guy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you, you never want to be like the next person. You know, I don't want to just fade into the, you know, abyss of cycling and and just be a regular rider. But let's talk athletics. You're not just a bike racer. I In college, you were a track runner. Yeah, in college, I threw javelin, ran cross country, and track and field. <laughs> but something that you're legendary for now, the weightlifting videos. Yes. Yeah. Weightlifting, strength training. We all talk about how important it is. You live it. Yes. I, and I live it, breathe it, believe it. I worked at it, the gym in college all four years. When I graduated, I worked at a gym for the first two years after graduating worked at results gym when that was around. So, I mean, I was, I was a gym rat for the longest. I met, um, a Croatian lifter in college and he really like turned me on to like actual weightlifting, powerlifting. So I pretty much enjoyed that more than the actual competing in track and field. And I think that was just the, the competing in track and field was the expression of the weightlifting. Like I really enjoyed the weightlifting and then the track and field was just icing on the cake. Now we've arrived at chapter two of this interview, the concept of community. Uh, bike racing, the bike racing world is segmented itself. You've got different disciplines and road and track, mm -hmm. cross, mountain bike, different styles of riding. I, I like to ride in the mountains. I like to ride flats, different training patterns, or schedules or goals. A lot of the sport is about being an individual. It's a sport that you can do by yourself any day of the week. But we still get together for these things called group rides. And there still is a social aspect mm -hmm. of the sport. How important to you is that social aspect of the sport? It's very important. Um, coming from a running background, which is more of a solitary sport, I... When I initially graduated from college and was looking for an athletic outlet, so I was like, well, I'll just sign up for 10 milers and marathons and half marathons and be fine. And, you know, you go out on these runs and 30 minutes in, you're like, you're so bored. There's, you're by yourself. There's nobody to really talk to. Music only takes you so far. And fortunately, I would always run at Haynes and I would see the noon group ride or I would see the evening group ride and I told myself it looks like they're having so much more fun <laughs> and so for me the community aspect the social aspect of going out on these group rides is what initially drew me in 
I I was like, you mean there's people, other people to ride with? Like, I need to do that. Like, they, they look like they're having way more fun. The weird thing about the group ride is we all get together. We all go ride. Some rides are casual, easy mm-hmm. pace. And then there are the more famous rides, the ones that we hear about, Swami's or uh, the uh, Rose Bowl in Southern California, mm-hmm. the Port of Oakland ride, the Picnic Loop in Houston. Uh, there's one in Miami on A1A, mm-hmm. even the 10 a.m. here in Washington, D.C. These are rides that are specifically designed to to hurt. Mm-hmm. They're designed to be competitive. Yet that's such a part of our ethos of coming together, not to talk and chat and things like that, but coming together to go after each other and push each other. One of the things that we've started here in D.C. is Fight Club. You know, what is Fight Club? I know we're violating rules number one and two because we're talking about Fight Club. But what is Fight Club? It basically is the noon ride that does loops around Haynes Point is what it essentially is. And it, it, it was a ride that existed before. It started to get a little bad press. And the we had a Facebook group that kind of got taken over by people that weren't really a part of the group that, you know, was kind of based all out of rumor and conjecture and, you know, secondhand information so it all it was almost that was kind of like the lowest where it kind of seemed like it was getting ready to go away and people were just going to do their own thing at noon and you know we were going to end this great thing that we had so it kind of like grew out of that where I really just I grown close to all the guys that I've ridden with almost every day at 12 o'clock to one o'clock and I didn't want to see that go away. So I just made it up in my head that I was going to create a new Facebook group and it was only going to be people that actually did the ride, that knew about the ride, that you can actually invite to come to the ride. So, you know, every person that showed up was knew somebody. And if you were bringing somebody new, you could kind of tell them about it. So it it went by word of mouth. For people who don't know what Fight Club is or where Haynes Point is, Paint a picture for us of of what this ride is like. For the guy or the girl in Canada who listens to this, what is Fight Club like? It's a 3.2-mile loop around a park. Most of the park is uh, one-way, so it's like an enclosed loop. So we start promptly at 12 o'clock, sometimes 11.58, if if people are feeling really antsy. (laughs) But... Yeah, primarily it's from 12 to 1 o'clock. The first lap is kind of a warm-up to allow the group to actually form. Some people aren't able to get there until like exactly at 12, so they can ride the loop in reverse to catch on. But after the first lap, when we reach the one-way side, the one-way gate again, then we go for it. We just go hard for the next 45 minutes, and that's a wrap. And it's all bone flat. It's all bone flat, no hills, two stop signs. But yeah, for the most part, you're really just riding at a good pace for 45 minutes. And it's every 10 minutes or so, there's a full out sprint. Full out sprint. Yeah, it's actually marked in the pavement. So you know where the actual finish line is. And then there's a regroup after the sprint. 
a neutral section at the bottom of the loop, and then you go again. So you talked about the community that's kind of built around this. And, you know, we've all become basically friends through this. And and we may not be people who would ever have gotten together otherwise, even people who would have gotten together on the bike. What's it like to be a part of an entity like Fight Club where this thing has organically grown? Well, for me, I'm... I know myself, I'm not the most social person. So it's been really important for me because like these, these are the same people that I've probably been riding with for the last 11 years. And so you start to, you know, really grow close to the people that you, you know, you spend time with, you sweat with, you work hard with, you see each other's development. You, I mean, from, September to now, you can see when somebody's putting in the work, when they're getting stronger, when they're getting faster, and it it only motivates you more. It's more motivating when you see other people's progress and you can gauge your progress and you see how the group is progressing and you're just super motivated. And it's really important to be around like-minded individuals, motivated individuals, good people, professional people, you know, fun people. There's so many different types of personalities. Like, And even when people might necessarily not get along, I think everybody respects the person pedaling their bike next to them. And that's that's ultimately what it comes down to is just having respect for the other person. You know, people are taking time out of their day to come out here for just one hour and really getting a good workout. That might be the only time they get to ride all week. So I think we all just value that one hour workout time so much so that we're looking out for everybody else that shows up for that ride. You've become one of the leaders. You weren't elected. You sure <laughs> as heck didn't appoint yourself. <laughs> no. <laughs> but people respect you and they, they listen to you. What does it mean for you to be a guy who came into the sport because it looked like it was cool to now be somebody who's leading the troops for lack of a better word Uh, it's one of I mean it's and like you said it's not I never set out to be the leader or put myself out in front it was it and honestly it really came out of selfishness because I didn't want this ride to go away I knew it was such it was such a staple of my development over the years. Like, and it was something I relied on for my own training. When I didn't have a coach, it was my day was based around that 12 to one o'clock hour. And, and whenever I had other errands or things to do, it all worked around that 12 to one o'clock time slot. Like I try and leave that free as much as I can, because I do realize it's such a staple of my own training. So it was really born out of that selfishness, but realizing the responsibility, I think it's one of those things like if you went into it trying to wrestle and take control of it with leadership, just with the type of personalities that we have that are part of this, right? It, it wouldn't happen that way. You know, it's never, it's never really the biggest mouth that gets it, you know, that gets the leadership role. So it's one of those things of, you know, naturally being a strong rider, you know, being one of the few cat ones that actually does the ride on a regular basis. 
and just kind of organically grew into a leadership role that I I didn't really know I had until it was in my lap. And I'm like, oh, okay, I guess, <laughs> you know, at times, like, I want to show up and like, I don't want to think about anything. I just want to do the ride and I want to go home. But, you know, I realize the responsibility and just caring about everybody that does the ride is, I think that's one of the main aspects. Like, I care, I genuinely care about everybody that shows up for that ride. I, I don't want anybody to get hurt. I do want people to get dropped, but I don't want them to not come back the next time. <laughs> so, Well, you've seen this growth in community at Fight Club. Uh, more than you've seen in a lot of places. And this leads us to chapter three, which is a discussion about African-Americans in bike racing. Uh, This is radio, so nobody knows, maybe or not, that you're Mm African-American. And while talking about race is often a touchy subject, talking about race and bike in in the bike world doesn't need to be. And I don't want to put you on the spot and I definitely don't want to make you a spokesperson if you don't feel comfortable doing that. But you've become this leader through Fight Club for this group of athletes who have become interested in a sport that was not always known as the most diverse. So you've got multiple African-Americans who come to Fight Club. You've got uh, a growing Latino community in Washington, D.C. who's getting into bike racing. You've got a growing cadre of elite bike racers in the country with Justin and Corey Williams kind of leading the charge. Is this a conversation even worth having? Oh, most definitely. I, you know, I think ultimately that's, I, in my heart of hearts, I love to get more minorities into cycling, you know, and I cycle almost on a regular basis through Anacostia, you know, through through most of the areas in Southeast where I grew up. So, you know, I I'm always wondering, like, how much untapped talent and potential I see as I'm riding through these cities. Like, man, I, I guarantee like if you can conveyed the message to them that you 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 can get just as many opportunities through cycling as you could through basketball and football like if you really could convey that message and you know lower the cost of entry or barrier of entry like there's so much untapped potential out there that it I want to find it if I have you know it's like what do I have to do to find these guys like I you know, how do we get more, more minorities riding bikes? That's the thing. It's like, it's one of those things like cycling is an expensive sport. Like we, we get that. There's, you really, there's no way around it, you know? So it's like, how, how can we get them actually interested? I feel like if we could get their foot in the door, that's like a smaller hurdle to get over. DC is DC Mabra has something going for it. It's got at least three major majority African-American communities, Mm -hmm. Baltimore County, Washington, D.C. itself, and Prince George's County. Prince George's County is 60% African-American. It's also one of the wealthiest majority Mm -hmm. African-American counties. I think in 2010, the median family income was $85,000 a year. So we've got this community that 
has the disposable income, hopefully, to get into the sport. And we've got these great clubs like Artemis or Getting It In Cycling or Phase, which seem to cater more towards Southeast D.C., Prince George's County, on down into Southern Maryland. What is it about these clubs and the people who are on these teams that seems to be so exciting? And it can't just be the fact that the colors of their kits Mm -hmm. are way brighter than anybody else's. It's because that's where their heart is too. Like I got my start with Artemis. So when I first came in, first started riding, it was a rider from Artemis was the first person that approached me. Hey man, you're strong. Like let's get you on a team. And then the very next race I had Artemis kit on. That was, that was, you know, that was kind of all I was looking for. I, me being a new rider at the time, I didn't know where to start. It was just like, I'll show up at the time I think this ride starts and I'll just ride in the group of people. (laughs) But I I didn't know the lingo. I didn't know what to talk about. I didn't know who to talk to. So it was kind of one of those things. And like I said, I'm not the most outgoing person in the world. So I'm not just going to ride up to a group of people like, hey, what? how do I clip in? You know, (laughs) it's like, I'll figure out what I can on my own. But, you know, like I, Jerry McCallop, he's a guy, people call him train, but he came up to me, him and Johnny Mac on Artemis. And they were like, man, you're fast. Like, do you want to race on a team that all I saw was two guys that looked like me, and I'm like, sure, I'll be, I'll be on your team. I don't, you know, I'm not racing with anybody. So I, they're they're super welcoming. Um, it's one of those things. They're they're not really they're not looking for the latest and greatest talent. It's like we will take anybody that's really interested in riding and learning and getting stronger and being a part of the community that they have on that team. So now. You stand on the shoulder of giants. You weren't the first Mm African-American bike racer in the area. You owe it to the mentors like the folks that you talked about or Dave and Cheryl Osborne. But now you are, for lack of a better word, a role model for people like Azira Franklin or Mays Winbush who are coming up, who are African-American women who are incredible riders. What's the advice that you want to give to them or to their parents to keep them in the sport, to keep them interested, to to push them up? For me, it's just having your own goals. It, it You can't, I don't think in this sport, you can really base how you want to progress off of anybody else. It has to be, you have to personally want it for yourself and look for the path that's going to get you to achieve those goals. Because there is, you know, some teams are really narrow minded and one focused. You might think from the outside looking in, that's the way I need to go to get what I want. But you're seeing with guys like Justin Williams now, it's like, no, if I just develop into the rider that I want to be for myself, opportunities will come, doors will open, even if that means you have to create your own thing. There's always a path. For you, there's always a path for the rider next to you, and you just can't copy somebody else's path. You have to be your own person, put in the work yourself. I think, and and that's what it boils down to. If you put in the work to develop into the best rider that you can be, the doors will open. Like 
nobody will be able to stop you. Well, DJ Brew, thank you so much for being on Marble Radio. Best of luck at Hagerstown. Oh, yeah. I'll need it. <laughs> hey, thanks for listening to another episode of Marble Radio. When we talk about community, sometimes we overlook the most important community, and that's the one that starts at home. With our husbands, our wives, our spouses, partners, boyfriends, girlfriends, parents, and children, these are the people who help us become better people and better bike racers. I'm recording this epilogue on June 23, which is seven years to the day since I got married, and it still is one of the best days of my entire life and one of the greatest memories that I ever had. My wife doesn't know that I'm recording this as part of the the episode, but I just want everybody to know how special she is to me, and I'm sure you all feel the same way with your respective partners. Community starts at home, and if you've got a positive community at home, then there's no limit to what you can do, hopefully, in the outside world. We've got a bunch of great shows coming up in the next couple of weeks. Our next episode is going to be with Rob Laybourne, the director of Armed Forces Cycling Classic, to talk to us about what it takes to put on a pro-level bike race. We'll also be speaking again with Kristen Arnold of ButcherBox in her role as a nutritionist to help us figure out what it takes to fuel an athlete and what things you need to look for when you go to the grocery store and when you prepare meals. After that, we've got a bunch of really fun shows slated, including a crossover show with Bill Scheichen of Cyclocross Radio, where we talk about why road and cross can live in the same world at the same time. Until next time, please like, share, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, or anywhere that you get your podcasts. Until next time. See you out there on MacArthur Boulevard.